You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org I'm Deep Tran. I'm Jose Solis. And we're your token theatre friends. Your friends who see too much theatre and who, and who want to talk about it all the time. 24-7. How many shows do you see a week, Jose, on average? A thousand. A thousand. You do. <laughs> are you are you, are you Hermione? Do you have a time turner? No, that's so nerdy. Don't talk Potter to me. <laughs> are they called time turners? They're called time turners. You sat through seven hours of time turners. I don't remember it. Wait, wait. Well, we're not talking about Harry Potter today because we already talked about Harry Potter, and we still don't think it should have won best play. But whatever's. No one listens to us. It's fine. It's fine. What are we talking about today, Jose? Today we're talking about Everyone's Fine with Virginia Woolf by Elevator Repair Service at Abrams Art Center, Teenage Dick at the Public Theater, and Fairview at Soho Rep. Yeah. We're going to talk about those three shows, and then we're going to tell you which one we would actually pay money for. Let us start with Everyone's Fine with Virginia Woolf. That's currently playing at Abrams Art Center. It's written by Kate Salsa and, and and produced by Elevator Repair Service, who are the wonderful people behind Gats and Arguendo and other fun, you know, ensemble work. It's running until June 30th, and tickets are sixty-five to seventy-five dollars. It is basically a parody of Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf by Edward Albee. You know that play where, you know, two angry white people just yell, yell at each other for two hours and two other angry white people are somehow stuck in an in a house with them and they can't leave for some odd reason. I don't know. I've never been I've ha- I'm not a big fan of Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf to begin with. So the parody was by comparison not as painful to sit through. <laughs> How about you? What a dump. What a dump. <laughs> I love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but I like that you mentioned whiteness because this one I thought was really special because there's a person of color on stage. I don't know what the Albi estate feels about that, like especially with what happened, was it like last year when they were like playing? Year. Yeah. Yeah, well, they, they wouldn't let uh, a black actor play the character of Nick, which is the young white dude. It's like, is Virginia Woolf about whiteness, you think? Well, according to the Alpia state, it is. But what, what do you think? I just think it's about drag queens and about gay men fighting. And gay. Yeah, and that's one of the things that um, everyone's fine with Virginia Woolf critiques because it also critiques um, Tennessee Williams, who was a repressed gay man, and the critique is he, the characters of. Blanche Dubois and, you know, Maggie the Cat are basically gay men, but he's using straight women to inhabit, to basically be gay men because he couldn't write gay men. I thought the show, I thought the show was really great at reminding us about that. And it's, I feel that in many ways, white gayness or gay whiteness, which was the proper way, I don't know. But, you know, like in many ways, white, being white and also being gay for some reason, like people who are white and gay feel that being gay cancels their whiteness and their mm-hmm. maleness, mm-hmm. which is not the case. So I really like that Elevator Repair Service is saying, hey, you can be 
gay, but you're still a freaking misogynist. Yeah, and like, and women aren't your like women aren't your beards in order to to cover up the fact that you're gay and repressed and sad about your life. People who write, you know, men who write women on stage, and I really enjoy the plays like critique of like just how women are usually portrayed in this, where you think, oh, Martha, the character, she yells at her husband a lot, but you know, she can be an she can be an empowering figure. But I actually don't find Martha to be an empowering figure because uh, because like when. Because her entire existence, her, her the reason she's so angry is, be, is because like she could never have a child, and I liked the fact that this play, uh, everyone's fine with with Virginia Woolf, just like didn't really care about the fact that they were a childless couple, and instead it it, it became a play about you know a couple who's trying to open up their marriage and sleep with other people and trying to you know discover their their own sexuality like that feels more relevant in 2018 to me right because there's i don't think there's anything more empowering nowadays especially than deciding not to have children yeah and all these women in this place are either you know like gorgon media types or women who like suffer and make everyone's life miserable because they can have children and that's a ton of bullshit i think Mm-hmm. Though you did love Yerma, so I don't know how. <laughs> I don't well, know how empowering, you know. I mean, it's, know. I didn't like it for being empowering or not. It, it was just a great production. It was a great. Pro- I get sorry, we're not talking about Yerma anymore. But it was a very good production. Uh, and though the cri- the critique I would have of this play is, I the thing I do love about Albie's original play was the language and how like. They insulted each other in a way that I would love to insult other people, but huh. I'm not fancy enough to do that. And I I feel like I would have loved just like better, just like on a technical level, just like better language that wasn't quite, that, it wasn't, that wasn't so crass and wasn't so contemporary because then it seems to almost be saying like, you know, you can't make a feminist work that is also like, on a play level, like lyrically beautiful and like the play should be able to exist on its own. And I don't really think it does that. Yeah, I agree. It only exists as a response to Albie. And my, my critique would be, you know, will people who don't know who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I'm afraid that there's really no pun intended over there, but I'm afraid that there's a lot of people, especially younger people who maybe have never heard of the mm-hmm. play. Maybe they know it in passing. Maybe they haven't yeah. even seen the movie and they're going to be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And the thing is like, I, when I saw it, like it, it's been a few years since I've seen who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And it was one of those things where, okay, I could either read, look at it and do it and watch the I'll be play again just to refresh my memory or I could just go into this clean and see what happens if I was just like your regular casual theater person who's a little bit literate but not completely by love elevator repair service and I found it entertaining but because like nothing it wasn't witty and the feminist overtones were were very overt and a little bit over the top that I didn't enjoy it as much as I think people who love the Albie play did. Yeah? I'm nodding. 
Yeah, you're nodding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so if you're like an, an, a theater Illuminati and all be fan, you'll have a great time. And if you're but if you're a person who has no opinion about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, it, it, it may be a bit of a it may be a journey for you. But it'll still be funny. You'll, you, like you'll still laugh. And it's only one hour and 15 minutes long. Exactly. But will we pay money for it? We'll find out. <laughs> Next play. Teenage Dick by Mike Liu is an adaptation of Richard III. Basically kind of like Richard III meets Mean Girls by way of Carrie. We meet the young Richard who's trying to make people see past his disability by becoming senior uh, senior class president and following the example of Machiavelli who he happens to love he well he I mean if you know Richard III you know he'll do everything to get to power which also another play about republicans apparently <laughs> and and they say there's no republicans in the american theater I know right I'd seen a, a workshop of Teenage Dick a couple of years ago, around the time before the election, actually. And I don't have enough words to say how relevant the play has become in the two years since I saw it originally. Uh, you know, it's still very funny. It's a great Shakespeare adaptation. It's kind of like, I don't know how you feel about 10 Things I Hate About You. I like it, yeah. But, I mean, it was like, okay. But I feel that this one, you know, like Mike, unlike the play we were talking about before, Mike really gets sense of the importance of language. And in between all like the teenage mm-hmm. lingo, mm-hmm. there's some beautiful moments and some beautiful lines. Like I think, and I don't want to spoil it, but I think this play has one of the most beautiful, like haunting monologues that I've heard in my life. Yeah. Well, I don't know which monologue you were talking about, but my favorite monologue was spoken by like a young Asian woman, which, you know, how often do young Asian women just get to sit on, stand on stage and just talk for a really long time? Not very long at all. Nope. And I, we need to give a shout out to Greg Mazgala, who plays Richard, because we interviewed him three episodes, a couple of episodes ago for Token Theater Friends. You can see the video on YouTube. I have to tell you, Greg is a very good-looking man. He's also a great actor. He's also a great actor. Like, when he has the ability to make us empathize with someone who's as demented and, you know, evil as Richard, he's onto something. Right. And Greg is, like, one of the rare actors with a disability who's been able to play the role of Richard in any permutation because mm-hmm. that role is usually played by an actor who, you know, crips up and pretends to have a disability. So it was just great to actually see an actor with that physicality making use of a stage and and like taking ownership of it. And I just I just love this entire cast actually. I wanna I wanna shout out like all of the women. Because I have to say, even though them. Greg is a very good looking man, he was overshadowed by his female <laughs> co stars. For good reason. Yeah, I mean, you have Shan- Shannon DeVito, who is an act. I, I, I've never seen her act before, but like, I just love the, the, the sardonic energy and the fact that even though she has a disability, her character has a disability on stage with a wheelchair, she was like, no, I, I, I am amazing. And this football star should want to get in on this. <laughs> I was like, yes, 
Yes, he should, because you're funny as hell. So go you. You do you. <laughs> like, what did we think of the fact that even though we kind of empathize with the character of Richard, he's and and we're also repulsed by him at the same time. Like the play is, we're not gonna we're not gonna spoil it for you when we when we say it doesn't end well. So what do we think of the fact that this character with the with the disability is kind of evil? Is that a problem portrayal? I mean, I don't think it's a problem portrayal. Like if nothing else, it made me think about you know how people who are oppressed sometimes are oppressed to the point that just going beyond the law and going beyond what, you know, society thinks they should be doing and maybe, you know, even becoming evil are the only choices left for people. And it's so disturbing to see this. I mean, coming up, for instance, from a part of the world where sometimes your choice is either to be dirt poor and have no education or going into a life of crime I mean, I, I just really love the moral conundrums and, like, the ethical dilemmas that the play post. Because I left thinking the same, like, you know, like, this guy's really evil, but I also kind of get it. And but, and, but then I'm wondering, like, would your normal old white couple that go to the theater who aren't disabled, would they get it? Like, uh, or, 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 would, or would they think... Oh, why is this? Why is this guy so angry all the time? Because they say, you know, people, people say that about black people. Like, why? They, because they're constantly being oppressed and murdered by police, and like. I, I know, I know, but somehow it's like that's not enough. Like people, I feel like people, marginalized people, like we're never allowed to just be angry. Right, because then, like you know, people are uppity. Or just mm-hmm. like, oh, like gang members and stuff. But you know what? I, I didn't think about that at all because fortunately, I saw one of the most diverse audiences at the play. And that made mm. me, that gave me a lot of hope and it made me really excited about that. Right. Well, we, I mean, I have to credit Ma Yi Theater Company for co producing it with the public theater because they're an Asian American theater company. And so being able to partner with a large institution like the public, whose audiences are a little bit homogenous. And bring in like more diverse audiences to this play about the disabled experience. Oh my God! It's such a great confluence of so many things that we advocate for on this podcast. Bravo, Mayi Theater. Thank you, Mayi. Oh, oh, uh, I did want to shout one more thing. There's also a dance break in Teenage Dick, and I loved it so much. Because it's set in a high school, and I feel like every high school story always has a big moment at a dance where, like, you know, a boy and a girl, they dance and they fall in love, and it's like a magical moment. And they were able to do that kind of moment in this play and with an actor with a disability and just being able to see him move and his... But being able to see an actor with a disability move like that and be unencumbered by it was just was just so wonderful. And I kind of wanted the entire play. I, 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 I wanted to see that for, you know, the entire play. Granted, the entire play was also quite good. <laughs> you know, more dance breaks. 
Yes, I think Mike is really great. He has such a great grasp of genre that this is the kind of play that kind of feels like, you know, like when you're watching a movie that you love when you were in high school, for instance, and you suddenly mm -hmm. realize this movie is actually really smart. And it talks to you as a grown up. And Mike just like handles this perfectly. Like, you know, it's, it's a play that might be set in high school. And some grown-ups might be like, oh, this is for kids. But it's a play that doesn't condescend to anyone in the audience. And Mike, please keep writing plays. Yeah. And also, if you're going, if you go see this play, take some teenagers. Because I think they'd really relate to the high emotions that these characters have. Because I remember as a teen, everything is important. And if not, they're at least going to love telling the title of the play to their friends. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's enough. That's one of those titles where you really need to. You don't want to come into the middle of that conversation. You don't. Teenage Dick runs until July 29th, and tickets start at fifty dollars. The the final play we're going to talk about is Fairview by Jackie Sibla's Drury. Uh, it's currently running at Soho Rep until July 22nd, and gen general admission is thirty five dollars. I have so many feelings about this. Well, first of all, uh, Jackie Sibla's Drury, if you don't know her work, uh, she's most well known for a play called We Are Proud to Present a Presentation, which is like a very meta-theatrical exploration of how you create a play about colonialism in Africa. It's been produced around the country. It is amazing. If you, if you have the opportunity to see it, you should see it. Her newest play, Fairview, is, I cannot spoil it for you, but it is basically an examination of how black people have traditionally been portrayed in American entertainment and the toxicity of the white gaze and how bodies of color are usually being are usually expected to perform a certain way for for white bodies i mean for white audiences is that a good way to sum it up without... Without any spoilers? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way. And, you know, even though it sounds like a very brainy summary, the play... Well, it is very brainy. It's so smart. But it's also really, really, really entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we'll spoil anything by saying, like, the first play... The first part of the play is, like, a very entertaining setup for your typical family drama, which is... A family, in this case a black family, gathering together at dinner time, and there's tension. It's a family affair. <laughs> it's a family affair. Like, good luck trying to get all of the songs in a play out of your brain afterwards. Yeah, and that, but then, like, as they play those songs, you start to realize, oh man, I feel, I'm feeling kind of guilty for like listening to. It, those songs all those years and just accepting that those songs will always be played when there's black people on, yeah. on the screen. <laughs> but what I love and what is what was actually so um, simultaneously frustrating to me about the play was like there's a moment in the work where white people in the audience are very specifically called out. Which is refreshing because then it made you realize oh, sh there is a ton of white people mm -hmm. in this room. And then it made me realize, okay, then is this is this play then for white people? And if it's not, how can we make it so that there are more people of color in the audience so that we're not waiting five minutes for all the white people to, you know. To what they're called to do. Yes, exactly. Like, it was one of those times where I appreciate the call out. At the same time, I, I am so tired of the call. 
of calling having to call it out. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just the times we live in. Unfortunately, we don't live. I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised, in fact, to realize that there were less white people in the audience than I thought there would be. So I think Soho Rep must be doing something right that way because it was no Lincoln Center or the public theater. It, well, granted, there that is a very small house, though, Jose. That's a good point. But I mean, like in terms of like the number of people, you know, like number of people of color per white people, I think it was a more, you know healthy ratio yeah yeah yeah. it was like a 25 to 75 which it could be worse right yeah it could be way worse on that note though i want to give a shout out to actor maya botang for really holding it down during a very uncomfortable moment in the play where she's the only one talking and she's calling out white people in the audience and being able to one break the fourth wall and two make the audience do something very uncomfortable and you know it's going to make them uncomfortable and you don't know what's going to happen when you do that and to be able to hold that within herself and do it with such you know empathy and grace and clarity was like was kind of astounding like it was such a it's like i know it's an, it's scripted but it, it's still like a very risky thing as an actor to put yourself in that position yeah, because like one of the things that also I think we – I won't be surprised when we hear people, you know, white people who say I was attacked at this play and I was yelled at and I felt uncomfortable. And in no way does the play attack anyone or insult anyone. Rather than that – and you brought up the word empathy. Rather than that, the play is simply asking people of color and also white people, hey, we are in this together. Whether we like it or not. You know, we've been stuck in this like like routine of like oppression and injustice forever. What are we gonna do about it? Like you know, like we can't divide each other anymore. Let's talk. Let's get together. Let's it's a family affair together, and let's fix this. I don't feel. Did you feel the play was attacking white people? I could feel some pe- white people feeling like they were attacked because they're frail. But the play isn't doing that. I don't think the play is doing that. I I think what the play is doing is like questioning like the types of stories where we have always been told or we are expected to tell of a certain group of people. Like they, there's like this moment in the play where all these stereotypes of of what a black narrative is just comes up and you're just like no, no, put that away. This is not that. This is not that story. And the thing <laughs> is, it should not. It should not always be the story. And I think Jose and I and I we always, you know, Jose, we always talk about like what are what are the kinds of stories we sh- we should be telling about each other that allow each other to like go beyond the stereotypes and go and go beyond like what is expected of us, and to, so that we always have to talk about identity all the time. And I think this play really explored the fact that if we were to do that, like, what would that look like? And do we need to acknowledge any of the past or can we at any point, like, ignore race? Yeah. I think also the play was being very critical of that, of, you know, like how we see all these theater companies in New York, at least, put on all this place about people of color and they're essentially always a riff on the same it's a family reunion everyone's cooking and there's drama because people of color are dramatic and yeah like enough with that right or like we're always going it's always going to be about like something that's that's about our race and it's always (laughs) and we're always going to have to talk about in some form like 
a lot of people are saying like why do you have to make it make it about race all the time like why can't you just talk about something else oh maybe it's because like there is never the opportunity to talk about something else because that's what is expected yeah i don't wake up and go like oh i feel very latino today yeah it's like i'll wake up and be like you know i'm feeling really asian and i don't like my parents <laughs> right now because i'm asian <laughs> same yeah I loved all of those things that the play was bringing up, and I hope that maybe the next time Jackie can write, like, just the, a family affair story, like, some kind of some kind of story where that freedom can be expressed. Here's hoping. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what would you pay for? I am so conflicted. Why? I need to have a tie. What? You- I cannot make up my mind. I love, 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 love Teenage Tick. And I love Fairview. Like, in fact, I think these two plays have, like, secure spots, like, in my top ten of the year. Mm. So I'm going to go with both. Yep. Already. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to go with Fairview because it's only $35 and it will blow your mind. And may and you'll have some songs stuck in your head. So yes. it's a- finally it has happened to me right in front of my face. Remember when the Yeah. <laughs> God, I love this play. Oh god. Uh you wanna intro the interview? Yes. It's a family Next up, we talk to Drama Desk Award nominee Kenita Miller about her performance in the Tony-winning Once on This Island. We talk to Kenita about her work, about her upcoming shows at Fine Science 54 Below, and about the very first time she saw herself on stage. And as a bonus, if you go to YouTube and you look out for a web series, we have a special Once on This Island extravaganza with... Tony winning costume designer Clint Ramos, who took us backstage to meet the goats, see all the beautiful dresses. So, you know, if you love Once on this Island and you love beautiful images, go to YouTube or to Facebook or to the American Theatre website and find our video. Hi, Kenita. Thank you for joining us. Hello. So thank excited. you for having me. You know, this is exciting. Uh, this show is exciting to me. So this family is exciting to me, so it's it's an honor to be here. Well, congrats to all of you for winning the Tony Award. <laughs> oh God, I'm still pinching myself. Like, you know, this is almost well, a few months more. It'll almost be a year for mm-hmm. us, which is crazy. But it feel, it feels like all these seeds that we planted along the way from the the beginning with the the first workshops, and to now be on the other side of the Tonys, and to yes, actually win one is ugh, still make me emotional. Like, um, it's been a beautiful journey, and I'm really really. If I can say, well, I'm gonna say I'm very proud of us, and and mm-hmm. um, it's a that's another honor too. I mean, what a privilege to be. Uh, recognized in that way so yeah it's it's amazing and i'm still floating on a cloud (laughs) (laughs) what was that first show after the tonys like for you and for the audience also oh god i'm gonna get fired (laughs) it was a very hungover show (laughs) 
a lot of celebrating, you know, a lot of celebrating because it was, you know, yeah, like I said, it was a journey for us. And we were all actually like we had all gotten ushered back onto a bus right after the Tony performance. Mm -hmm. So it was like somebody, a bunch of people got their camera, uh, their phones out and we were live streaming the rest of the show. So we were on a bus on our way back to the theater when we oh found out we one and when I tell oh, you that bus no. was like rocking oh, and then it just God. we all spilled out of it and we were just jumping around in the streets we I think stopped traffic right in front of the theater <laughs> so it was a very like 1980s dance movie moment for me uh, <laughs> what, know, are your, just, yeah. uh, what are your strategies for performing hungover uh, pray <laughs> <laughs> pray and and just you know we're really blessed because the show kind of does its own thing. If you would just jump into it and go for the ride, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like that's that's doing the show. You know, it, I think this one for me is very spoiling because once you set your feet in the sand, it feels like you're just automatically there. So all you have to do is say the words and be present mm -hmm. or as present as possible. <laughs> and, yeah, it's it's a magical show. It'll, I think, forever be one of my favorites. Well, You've done it like six times now yeah. in different productions. Yeah, and if there's any production after this, I'm going to play Tauntaun next. That's <laughs> what I say. Yeah, no, I, I started off playing Timon a bunch of times mm -hmm. when I was younger. Um, you can't tell. <laughs> oh, God. You can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> I got all right my now. gray hairs tucked yeah. up under this, you know, under this wrap. You play it right now. It's fine. Oh, goodness, no. That'd be a very jaded Timon. <laughs> Um, but I, I would have to say, <laughs> I would have to say, like, I love mama. I love her. I want to be a mama, you know. So I'm hoping this brings me some baby juju. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, you know, I, I this show, uh, Lynn and Steven in particular, have been very supportive of me when I was very young, when I was Haley's age, you know. Mm -hmm. So they're, they are extended family for me. And yeah, it just feels very dreamlike to be a part of this production with them, this revival, you know, which I thought was long overdue, but I'm really happy that it happened now. Perfect timing, I think. Because it's saying so much about what's going on in the world, and yeah. I think it's one of the most important shows on Broadway right oh, now in that you. way. And can you talk a little bit about what's it like to be doing, you know, specifically this revival? Because it's talking about, you know, natural disasters, potential refugees yeah. and also the world's indifference to what happens to people. Oh yes, it is quite important in that way. Um, it's interesting because my mom actually, in the beginning, our version, we are set in Haiti and we kind of leave it as that's the jumping off point. We're rebuilding, we're a community rebuilding after a devastation of a storm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very interesting because my mom actually did some missionary work in Haiti. And she's actually, oh God, I'm such a punk because it's going to make me emotional. But, because uh, I miss her a lot. <laughs> I've been able to see my family for a minute. But even more so why this show has such importance to me. Because um, my mom, she did missionary work in Haiti and she was actually assigned to um, some of the orphan children who were actually, her children were a part of a school. Mm -hmm. So they were rebuilding the school to actually give them a place to to stay and be. And uh, it's crazy because the little girl in our show, um, some of the children's uniforms looked almost identical to our little girl's uniform. Um, so my character in the beginning, 
Uh, my mom's name is Mamie, so I called her Mamie to kind of give it more of a Haitian kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, French feel. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, I think it is important because of all the natural disasters that are happening now, uh, you know, overseas, here in the States. You know, Mother Earth, she's like, you all do what you want, but I'm going to fix myself. Mm. I'm going to heal myself, you know, whether you're here or not. <laughs> so make, choose choose wisely. But she's definitely like, you can feel her breathing and trying to, to yeah, heal herself. And so it does feel special, like, to not just be jumping around in costumes, but to, like, have a purpose. I mean, we have a purpose in theater anyways because mm-hmm. we show reflections of life. And I feel, you know... Um, that we get to show a very beautiful and very kind of warning, you know, in, in our in our show. So I like to think so. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. No, that was yeah. <laughs> you mentioned costumes, and since we yeah. we went backstage and we met Clint and we saw all these beautiful costumes, what's it like? you know, to perform every night in those incredible costumes? Well, Clint I wears. love Clint. I love him. You know, we have some history together. We've done a few shows, and um, it's be- it's been beautiful to see his journey um, as an artist. And um, I remember when he first brought the renderings, you know, of what we were going to do, I, w- I said, this is genius. It's genius because it is so now. It's like if you went went to Haiti, you would see... You would see these people walking around. So it makes me feel like a human being um, to wear his designs. They're the one piece that he doesn't know this, and I'm telling on myself, but I have this apron that's made out mm-hmm. of a jean that actually I have my rendering of the woman where this was, I kind of, I guess, envisioned off of, and I'm stealing it afterwards. <laughs> it's coming with me. I don't know, you know, how I'm going to make it work on my everyday, but I'm going to because it's one of my favorite pieces. Um, Alex's, uh, his skirt that's taken from yeah. like a, a tablecloth, but it is so, to me, very <laughs> island chic. <laughs> but also um, so smart because it is, it's like, um, he and Dane Gaffrey, our, our set designer, uh, how they took like the natural resources that they had to create the costumes and to create the set and the pieces, you know, it's, it's kind of genius and to make it look beautiful, you know, and also like weather worn in a very mm-hmm. specific way, um, I think is genius. So we're very blessed to have them a part of our family. Well, I mean, well, I feel like one of the themes of the show is just, like, people of color taking, like, very terrible circumstances and making something beautiful out of it. So I love, like, this theme of, like, repurposeness. Yes, yeah. you know, which is, which was kind of, my opening night dress was um, from, I say reformation, but it's reformation. But I kind of got inspired by kind of the recycled, you know, use. And so it was all made from, like, all sustainable goods. But, yeah, the, I mean, even, like, down from our trash instruments, we have played mm-hmm. these little instruments that are made from, you know, pots and pans. And I play, like, a scope bottle, like a little, <laughs> like, you know, scope bottle and um, some other, like, an ambisol bottle, you know, <laughs> but that are actually perfectly pitched um, for our music. So I just, yeah, it's very thoughtful, you know, and it makes me think about, like, what we can do as human beings, like, how we can reuse just takes a little mind power. We don't have to destroy our earth to to create. You mm. know, we can 
reuse and use what we have here, and, and I, I love that type of stimulation. So. Later during the summer, you and the company of the show are going to be here celebrating Lena Steven. Yes. So besides once, and you're so incredible on your show. Oh, thank so you. Besides, great family. Besides once, what are some of their shows that you would just love to tackle at some point? Well, um, anything. I would do anything. I mean, I would literally, if they had a blade of grass that spoke, I would play a blade of grass. <laughs> you know, I, they are very special to me, I mean, to me, but to a lot of people and just to our history as human beings and artists. Um, because I feel like they have this magical sense of tapping into some kind of wavelength that, um, speaks humanity, you know, um, I also did another show with them called Dessa Rose mm -hmm. that was about these two strong women. And I shamelessly told them, too. I was like, it's been, oh, a few years now. I think that's time to bring back. I would love to do that show again. But I do think it's like, you know, there's a new kind of wave of woman empowerment. Um, and this, that show specifically uh, is, is very woman strong. And I would love to tackle that. Person shamelessly, I say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love to stand for strength in any way that I can, mm -hmm. whether it be woman's strength, human strength, love. You know, the strength of love um, is very important to me as a person. So any time I can stand for that as an artist, I'll jump on it. And Lynn and Stephen always create those opportunities. So, you know, I'm still trying to suss out a song because there's so much to pick yeah. from. Um, and there's so much that I still haven't heard yet, you mm -hmm. know, that I, I look forward to continuing to kind of take them in forever. <laughs> I, I mean, speaking of strong women, this is something I've been, I really, been really wanting to ask you, which is, so Once in This Island is a love story about a young woman who falls mm -hmm. in love with a boy and she sacrifices so much for him. Mm -hmm. And you're not a mother, but you play play mother on the show, and you want to be a mother one yes. day. And so, if you had a young girl who who said, "Mom, I I love this boy. What should I do for him to make him love me?" Lock her in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm go looking for that boy with a duffel bag. No. Um, <laughs> you know, I think about it every day because yes, I do want to be a mom, and it does think. And I have nieces and nephews, mm -hmm. and it. Oh, life is just, it's beautiful, but it's terrifying sometimes. And when you think about putting, uh, you know, kind of letting go in a way, I don't know how I'm going to do with that, honestly. You know, I really do hope that I'll have a balance of keeping an eye out, but also letting them experience life because that is the beauty of this scary thing, this scary, beautiful mm -hmm. thing, you know, is is the growing and learning and evolving from each day to day. And I just would hope that, I hope that I would do a good job at um, supporting another human being on a journey, you know. And I think that, that that's what this world does for me in thinking about T-Moon, you know, and thinking about my parents, too, and how my first day that they set me off here, you know, I know that my mom left and boohooed, you know, um, and how terrifying it had to be to leave me here. You know, <laughs> oh God, I can't believe I did that to them. But, you know, uh, I just, I pray to the gods for balance, you know, and knowing mm -hmm. what to do when that, when that time comes. Yeah. 
<laughs> you're also doing a show about Irving Berlin here at yes. Yeah. So you're doing all the masters. Oh God, yeah. What What are your favorite? Irving Berlin shows, like speaking about t tough choices to make. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have a show, but a song that is kind of rocking my world right now is called Harlem on My Mind, you know, and I'm actually going to be singing it uh, in the show. When they said Irving mm -hmm. Berlin, I was like, I don't know if I have to run over here butt naked, you know, because I have like two minutes. We'll be doing a show that, you know, that night and I will I'll be running down the street trying to get here. But the first song that came to mind was Harlem on my mind. Mm. Um, I think, ooh, I think Ethel Waters might have sang it at some point, but it reminds me of all of like Harlem Renaissance and like mm. just that kind of decadence and that kind of uh, guttural like Harlem, you know, mm -hmm. so I don't know. There's some way that he structured these chords that just kind of taps me into that time. You know, I feel like brownstones and yeah, and like Harlem and Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. So um, anything Irvin Berlin kind of like just taps into my blood. I, I don't know what it is, but I love it. I love Irving Berlin, period. <laughs> yeah. One thing we always ask everyone who we interview is like, when was the first time you saw yourself on stage? Oh, my first Broadway show. Yeah, my first Broadway show here in the city <laughs> was actually Ragtime. Mm. Oh. Yeah, it was actually Lennon Steven, which, I, oh God, it's going to date me. But yeah, it was <laughs> on Broadway. And um, it was actually special because my sister in the show, I call her my sister, she's like my spirit sister, Dilesia Circe, who is uh, about to transition into playing Erzuli, but she's mm -hmm. one of our storytellers. She was the Sarah that I saw what? in my first Broadway show, yeah. And she actually played my sister in The Color Purple. Uh, I played Celia, she played Nettie. So it's kind of beautifully strange how it all fits together, but um, that that was my first show and, and the first time I was felt so close mm -hmm. to like my dream you know actually like being in a Broadway theater because um, I'd seen stuff that toured through Rochester that's where I'm from upstate New York um, but that was my first kind of like awe you know moment and then also seeing Heather Headley and Aida mm. I remember sitting in the front row and my mom was sitting right behind me and the moment where I, they get closed up in that box or whatever, oh. I just, I mean, I was sobbing on and off all through the show, <laughs> but really sobbing like, because I was so moved and I was like, it's so powerful what we can do as artists. You know, it isn't just jumping around, you know, like you do make other strangers, like other human beings tap into their emotions and that's powerful, you know? Um, it sets us aside from this table, like we can yes. feel, you know, and uh, and I just kept thinking, oh, my God, I want to do that so bad. I want to be able to make people feel things. And then I remember my mom whispering in my ear, you're going to do it, baby. That's going to be you. And then I just started sobbing harder. And then I must have been ugly sobbing, too, because <laughs> Heather Headley looked down and she goes, oh, it's okay. And she got, like, the other cast members' attention. I remember it. Like, it'll forever be imprinted in my mind because it made, it just made that experience so special for me. Like, she zoned in. And she's a goddess to me. Like, she's just a goddess, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, so, yeah, that, that 
made like a special imprint in my heart. I will never forget those two Broadway shows. We are back for our 11 o'clock number, which is where we just talk about stuff. <laughs> What's on our minds this week, Jose? Well, you were recently in St. Louis, and even if I didn't get to go, I heard some really distressing news coming out of the Muni. Yes. So for everyone who, do, who does not know, the Muni is a musical theater company in St. Louis, and they play out of an 11,000-seat theater. Whoa. Yeah, which I don't think theater should be that large, but, you know, that's <laughs> just me. And I was in the audience for their production of Jerome Robbins' Broadway, which is a review of the best of Jerome Robbins' choreography. And in one sequence, they did The Small House of Uncle Thomas from The King and I, and the woman playing top team was a white woman. I just shot myself in the head. Yeah. It's like, they Emma stoned us. That is not cool. So that's like racism on top of like racism because like that's like one of the most racist numbers in all of Broadway history exactly exactly and I know that show so there is another so they could have done shall we dance because that's part of the show too but they did it they did decide to do the kind of racist musical number and when they did uh, a group of Asian theater artists who were in the audience they booed very loudly and they left which and I know people disagree on whether or not you should boo in a theater, but I think if you're going to perform in front of a live audience, you got to be prepared that sometimes people will talk back. And I support booing because, for one, that the ensemble for that show was 75% white, probably. It was, it was a really white ensemble, so, you know, they're, they're all playing Asian people and Latinx people and Jews, so... Are there, are there no people of color in Missouri? It was a national casting call. No. It was a national casting call. So how could they do this? I have no idea. I have no idea. Because they released a statement saying, well, it's a review, so it's really hard to cast authentically. Well, they did West Side Story, and they were able to find Latinx actors to play Bernardo and Anita. And Maria. So for some odd reason, you couldn't just find one more Asian. Or like, did all the Asians, did all the Asian musical theater actors in America just like disappeared for the summer? Were they just all in King and I or like overseas during Miss Saigon? So like there are no more Asian actors left. <laughs> Like, like, what? What is your excuse? What is your excuse? Because I would like to hear it. Did they have an excuse besides that? That, that was it. Like, we couldn't find people. Yeah. All over the country. Yeah. I feel like we temper our expectations. So if it's so, I don't think anyone would have been angry about the you know white people playing people of color in the background. But when it's a main character, like at least do that. You know, it's not hard. Just one more Asian. It's always just one Asian. Well, why is it always? Why is it hard to find one Asian? That that's yeah. So that's my rant. If you if you say you can't find an Asian actor, you're probably not looking hard enough. So please l- try harder, 
and stop it. And we stop would, trying to be Asian. White people, stop trying to be Asian. You are not Asian. And we would love to hear, especially from Asian actors in St. Louis, call the Muni, tweet at them, like send them letters, tell them we were here. Like, do better next time. Yeah. Anyway, that is our show. Thank you for listening. We're trying out something new because we are restless and we get bored easily. So, so for the next few episodes, we're going to be trying a multi-pronged approach. We're going to be doing the show reviews on the podcast. And then on video, what are we doing, Jose? We're taking you places, fancy places, Broadway theaters. We're doing field trips. We're going upstate. We're, we might be going to different cities very soon. So we're filming pretty things that you cannot hear on a podcast. So if you love video, check out Token Theater Friends on YouTube. And if you want to listen to our voices, then subscribe to Token Theater Friends, the podcast. Or check us out on YouTube and on iTunes. Like, we're trying to give a little bit of something for everyone. Because we know everyone has different needs and different preferences. And we want to be in every part of your life. Yes, we do. So as always... Theater's more fun when you take your friends. Bye. Bye. Extravagant. Extravagant.